Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. An increasing number of jobs require employees to work non-traditional hours. These work schedules are often misaligned with our circadian rhythms and, combined with other factors, present risks to health and safety. To talk to us about how to design shift schedules that balance operational needs while mitigating risks to the workers is Dr. Indira Gurubhavagatula. She is one of the authors of a joint AASM-SRS paper entitled Guiding Principles for Determining Work Shift Duration and Addressing the Effects of Work Shift Duration on Performance, Safety, and Health. Welcome to Talking Sleep, Indira. Thanks, Seema. Thanks for having me. So tell me about this paper. Why did you write it? it tell me all about it. Well, um, it, the reason this came about is that both the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the Sleep Research Society noticed that work shift guidance is essentially lacking, even though the science in this area has grown tremendously in recent decades. We're still using outdated ways of determining how long someone should work and how much time they should have off between shifts. So it was time for new guidance. <laughs> so, so who was on this committee? Is this a group of sleep people? Um, it was an amazing group, I'll tell you. They're incredibly talented individuals. There was a total of 12 people that were invited, um, roughly half and half, um, both PhDs and MDs. And the expertise was just simply phenomenal. So we had people who had done a lot of research. All of them are familiar with uh, sleep and fatigue um, and its impact and effect on occupational safety and performance. Um, but uh, we had circadian biologists. We had uh, people who had worked in the Air Force, aeronautics industry, in military, in emergency medical personnel and house staff. Um, so there was a broad representation, occupational health in uh, truck drivers. Uh, law enforcement officers. So um, plenty of experience and expertise. Wow, it sounds like it. Yeah. And there were also people who knew uh, about interventions and countermeasures, whether it was pharmacological or behavioral, um, phototherapy. So uh, just a huge amount of experience. So we also had three observers, Michael Hodgson from OSHA, Dr. Claire Caruso from CDC and NIOSH, and Emily Whitcomb from the National Safety Council. They were there to observe and comment and ask questions, uh, but they were not an official part of the panel. Well, so this was a huge undertaking then. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Um, <laughs> our first in-person meeting was actually before the pandemic in April of 2019 in Chicago. Um, wow. And we've had many phone calls and uh, a lot of email correspondence since then. I bet uh, our new Zoom culture, right? Uh, yeah. A lot of the work actually happened even before Zoom. But yes, definitely since Zoom as well. So you kind of talked about how there, we were using these antiquated thoughts. So tell me a little bit about that. How did we used to think about shift work and how did we handle this before? Well, when you think about the history of, um, of, uh, of work itself, what we see is that um, most workplaces prioritize productivity and costs, right? You have a certain amount of personnel, you have some resources, and you have to get a certain amount of work done. 
and you have to do it under cost. So really the effect on the worker and on the accumulation of fatigue across shifts, across days, across weeks or months or a lifetime really was not on the agenda of people who were setting the rules. The other thing to be aware of is that work was by and large physical. And that meant that fatigue was also by and large physical. So most jobs required you to, you know, lift things or carry things or, um, you know, fix stuff. And so doing things with your hands and with your body. So, and that type of fatigue, the physical fatigue tends to be linear and it accumulates linearly over time. And it similarly dissipates linearly over time. So it was sort of a straightforward relationship. And so the way that work shifts were handled is that you give people a maximum number of hours that they can work and you tell them a minimum amount of time that they can have off. So that's where we were historically. But when you think of... No, I was going to say, so then the implication is that it's no longer, you're no longer just dealing with physical fatigue. Yes, that's exactly right. We no longer are dealing with just physical fatigue. Since the Industrial Revolution and in more recent years, work has moved away from the physical sector into the cognitive sector. So a huge number of jobs now really require a lot of cognitive effort, including our own, right? Mm -hmm. Think of your typical clinic day and how much cognitive labor you put in from the time you start till the time you finish and finally go to bed, right? So um, that type of cognitive labor also has implications for fatigue. And we differentiated uh, that type of fatigue from physical fatigue, and we called it mental fatigue in the paper. Oh, so is that the same as cognitive load? Um, Well, cognitive load can lead to cognitive fatigue or mental fatigue. So tell me about that. Which is a degradation performance over time and a need for restorative sleep so that performance can be restored. So how should we think of this then, this cognitive load in terms of work hours? So that is the question, the reason why we all got together, which is how do you do this? And so in order to address that, you first have to understand how cognitive load responds over time. And it's not just a linear relationship. Yes, there is some of that involved and and mental fatigue does accumulate with number of hours you've worked and it does dissipate with the number of hours that you rest. But there's also, as we know in sleep medicine, there's also this circadian factor. So there are certain times of day where even if you've worked for a long time, there are certain times of day when you're more alert and able to uh, perform at a higher level than you are at other times of day, right? So you get that dip in the middle of the afternoon, um, and then you get that big dip in the middle of the night or in the night hours where performance really degrades. And that is a factor that contributes to fatigue that overlays on top of the homeostatic drive. So lots of spinning plates. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So is there some sort of um, maybe like guiding principles to figure out what an optimal work shift might be then? Yeah. So the, the whole choice to put this together as a set of guiding principles evolved out of a decision that was made um, at the, at the first meeting that we had, you know, so how do we do this? Do we do a literature review and do, you know, a a grade review and look at everything that's been published and then come up with, you know, an actual number of hours that are safe to work and a number of hours that are, you know, mandatorily required uh, between shifts? How do we do that? Well, and the literature just, it's very hard to do something like that because we wanted guidance that would be applicable Mm. to literally 
any work worker, any uh, context, any situation, anywhere. And so what might be appropriate for one job in one location and one type of worker may be very inappropriate for another. Um, so for example, if you say, well, you can only work uh, 10 hours a day, that may make sense. Um, you know, if someone is a librarian, let's say, where they come in and they, you know, start at the start of their shift and then they go home. But then if you have, say, uh, uh, medicine or some other 24-7 operation, you can't just leave at 10 hours in the middle of running a code mm -hmm. and say, well, my time is up. I got to go. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so you got to look at performance and safety and, and what are the implications for that situation. So, so help me understand which populations then this, this, this paper is for. I mean, yeah. you've kind of touched on safety critical occupations. You've kind of touched on um, like medical staff. Yeah, emergency workers, transportation. Um, you know, I think it's, it's very, very relevant for safety critical operations. But really, because of human biology, every single worker is vulnerable to the effects of chronic sleep loss and sleep deprivation or unrestorative sleep. So this really applies to all workers. Mm. And, and that's the reason we chose to have a set of guiding principles as opposed to prescriptive rule sets, which is how physical fatigue was handled in the past historically. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So this, what these guiding principles do is really give access to decision makers to come up with a customized or tailored solution that's appropriate for that context. So break it down to me in very practical terms. So if I'm a fellowship program director, for example, or a residency director, how do I implement this to help my house staff? The way we recommend it that any um, uh, decision maker or stakeholder takes on this incredible challenge is to look at three different areas. The first set of principles that we offer uh, relate to the assessment of risks. So take a look at what the risks are that uh, your workplace is subjected to. So in a healthcare setting, it, there could be risks to the, uh, the doctor or the mm -hmm. healthcare worker themselves. There could be risks to the patients. There could even be risks to the community. So if you think about the commute home after a night shift, for example, and oh, traffic sure, yeah. safety. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, um, the second set of principles has to do with countermeasures. So how do you how do you offset these risks? What are the countermeasures that are actually available and that are evidence-based and that they work? So that was the second set. And then the third set is how do you then come up with your solution? And so the third set of principles really uh, talks about um, it, it, it's, a, it's an approach where you look at the risks, you look at the benefits, and you assess the trade-offs of all of the different potential ways you could go about offering a solution. Um, and we offered principles around how those risks and trade-offs should be assessed. And then how do you figure out whether you made the right decision and chose the right set of countermeasures? Mm -hmm. um, so there are principles around each topic area that we outlined in the paper. So then it sounds like it's always this reevaluation, right? It's always a work in progress. You kind of do your assessment, you, you put in your, your measures, and then you have to have some way of measuring and then reevaluating. Exactly. So this is not a one and done prescriptive mm. solution. This is a work in progress, the work of art. So you create a solution. <laughs> Clearly it's a work of art. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so, then you monitor what you've done and you constantly keep reevaluating, reassessing and whenever needed, 
you correct your course. If you notice that something unintended happened, um, then you you make adjustments. So, for example, if you thought that a nap room would be really beneficial for your house staff and you offered it, but then you notice that, hey, nobody's using the nap room and you find out that it's located way too far away and it's not worth their time and effort to to go get to it. Or if there's noise, you know, somebody's yeah. doing the vacuuming late at night and so nobody's finding the nap room really um, restorative, so it's not getting used. So, you know, those are just two small examples, but but things like that. But that's important, right? I mean, that's pretty significant. Yeah, and, and it's a big investment, right, to set aside time and space for somebody to rest. And if you um, find out that it's not actually effective and not doing what it's supposed to do, um, then that's a problem. Well, it gives it more teeth. It's not just performative. Yes, and that's a, that's a major theme of this entire paper is to get away from checking boxes and move into actually thoughtful, effective, customized interventions. So earlier you hinted at the need to balance operational needs with worker needs. So do you have a message for industry? Um, that's a great question. So I think that um, stakeholders in industry need to view workers as full, you know, whole human beings. And when they do their assessment, uh, risk assessment of, of, of and, and uh, use that information to move forward, it's important to look beyond just, you know, how many hours uh, are they having to work? How much time do they have off? And even beyond what time of day are you having them work night or day? Um, but also what kind of work are you having them do? Uh, what type of load? How much stress is it associated with? Um, and, and do you have an issue with uh, staffing or training? Do you have more work can reasonably be accomplished in the amount of time you're giving your workers so that uh, the production demands really outweigh um, you know, uh, productivity capacity? of your workers. Um, and then just look at the characteristics of the workplace itself. Are there hazardous conditions or situations that require them to be on high alert all the time? So an ambulance driver, for example, or a plane operator, um, or um, a surgeon. Um, and look at uh, what other demands are being placed on that individual. Do they have a long commute home? Do they have, um, are there stressful factors at home? For in, you know, during the pandemic, as we're dealing with now, People are dealing with all kinds of things outside of work as well. And I you know? love that idea of really being thoughtful. So, for example, when you talked about having a long commute home, um, instead of saying, hey, everybody, don't drive drowsy, you know, is it better to invest in, hey, you know, when you're post-call, we're going to have an Uber to take you home? Yeah, exactly. And I think that those types of um, alternate solutions are really important. Um, or provide affordable housing near uh, the workplace. I also love that you touched on analysis of stress. So this is not just physical exhaustion, right? This is not just cognitive load, but also that that stress that sort of is overarching. Yes, exactly. And 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 recognizing there are interindividual differences in how well we tolerate stress. Some people are much more vulnerable than others. Um, and, you know, and the, and the causes and sources can be widely varied. So when you look within medicine, we know that women uh, have a disproportionate level of burnout 
um, our black colleagues experience stress and burnout at higher levels. So it's important to be aware of those subpopulations. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how we can use these guidelines to help our patients. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Learn how to maximize sleep facility operations, streamline workflows, and identify growth opportunities at the AASM's Practice Management course. This virtual meeting, November 19th and 20th, is a must-attend for the entire sleep team. Learn more and register at aasm.org pmc. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Indira Guruvavagatula about evidence-based guiding principles to help employers determine optimal work shift durations. So you talked about industry. What about clinicians? How should we use our clinicians and not for house staff necessarily, but how can we educate our patients and then how can we help advocate for our patients? Again, great question. Um, I think that before we can advocate, we first need to just look at what's going on and ask our patients the questions. Um, you know, it's tough because you only get a few minutes with each one. But the wonderful thing about our field is that we have um, ongoing management chronically. Mm -hmm. And so at any visit, we can bring it up, you know, and ask them, what kind of job are you doing? What hours are you working? How many hours a week? What are your days off like? What do you do when you're not working? Um, and how much sleep are you getting? How much sleep do you think you need? And uh, is there a big difference in the way you sleep on days off versus days on? And uh, and ask them, you know, does this job jive with you and your sleep needs? Right. Check their right. upwards. And then go from there, you know. And if you find, ask them if they've had incidents or accidents at work where they've made a mistake or had been fired or uh, were cited because they made an error that they knew was because of fatigue. And ask them about driving accidents, you know, on the way to work or on the way home. So then in order to make a change, I'm just, I'm trying to think about this. So logically, this will take funding. So how do we create that infrastructure to kind of take this from guidelines on a piece of paper to guidelines in reality? I think that... Um, the first thing to do is recognize the scope of this problem mm. and realize the degree to which it's impacting and affecting all sectors, all stakeholders. Mm -hmm. so, you know, family members are being impacted by an overworked um, breadwinner. Um, the employees themselves are being affected. And importantly, organizations themselves are also getting impacted, whether they notice it or not. Um, but you know, uh, a fatigued worker is going to have more issues with absenteeism and even with presenteeism. presenteeism yes. Yeah, where they're there, but they're not actually working up to capacity. They're more likely to take days off from work. You know, uh, there's more turnover in industries where there's high levels of fatigue. And retraining new people is very expensive. So, um, you know, the funding comes when you realize that you're already paying for it in your own way. Yeah. So, I mean, thinking about this, this seems like a, you know, really huge problem. And I'm kind of wondering if we need to take it, you know, like in, in little tiny pieces, right? So how can we look inward and address this in our own institutions? 
Um, I, I think there's work to do at every level. And I love what you said. How can we start with individual people and individual institutions? I think bringing people together, right? So you need the, the people in the trench. Um, you need the people that are uh, in an organizational capacity or in a um, uh, capacity to uh, write policies. Mm. Um, you need the budget people. You need all the different stakeholders that you can think of that could make a difference. Um, you know, with safety, medical officers, um, all of that, risk managers, and then bring them together and really start talking about, well, what are workers dealing with and what do they see as a potential solution and have them be part of the uh, brainstorming. So you kind of have to prioritize it then. Yeah, you got to look at, well, what are the biggest risks that you're worried about? So in one group of physicians or healthcare workers, it could be, it could be that uh, people are leaving. You know, mm. they're overworked and burned out and they're exhausted and the ships are not working for them. So they're leaving. So then it could be a, a workforce retention issue. And then how do you retain people? So um, ask, well, what's needed? Can we get rid of unnecessary tasks? Can we focus only on what's essential? Can some of the work be offloaded to other individuals who are also qualified to do it? And so the work is spread differently, you know? So it, it could be... Um, that people need more breaks or more days off. And you just have to close operations in a way that you didn't before. Um, so it, it could also mean increasing efficiency somewhere. So instead of doing things one at a time, you're, you know, you start batch processing. But you got to look and mm -hmm. um, look at what works. Well, and probably shift from this crisis management mode, right? Like a lot of our institutions were, you know, where it's COVID surge and nurses are quitting and everybody's burned out. Um, and so it, right now it's all sort of patchwork, right? And so it sounds like we really need to be more thoughtful about, you know, retention, but also like offloading work, like you suggested, right? Yeah, um, and being like, proactive um, right. instead of reactive. None of us wants any more wellness modules. So do you have any practical advice for how we can support our shift workers? So there are going to be those things that are uh, in terms of sleep that are uh, modifiable risk factors for fatigue. So one thing is get all of your workers aware of sleep as an important uh, need, as an important health need, right? So one of the problems in healthcare is that we have a culture that undervalues sleep. And, the, you know, we have mm -hmm. the saying, sleep is for sissies. Right. And right. So, right. And it starts even in medical school or, or, or even before that, who knows. But it's, um, it's a big problem. We need sleep the way we need air, the way we need food, the way we need water. And so it's really important to start to change that culture and have people look at, am I getting the sleep I need? And if not, what can I do to prioritize my sleep? And encourage people to learn about common sleep disorders. It's surprising how much... Um, lack of knowledge there is about sleep and sleep disorders. And it's just not taught to the degree it probably should be in medical school and beyond. So raising awareness and, you know, Harvard did this. There is one study that they've published where they tried to make healthcare workers aware of, um, of uh, risk factors for sleep disorders and then made, um, you know, healthcare available to those people. Mm. And they found that a number of them actually went ahead and pursued those treatments. So maybe we need to replicate that in other places. So train people on what their individual sleep needs are and how to go about recognizing common symptoms of things like sleep apnea or insomnia. You know, these are actionable conditions right. for which help is available. 
So those are the one, that's one place to start. And obviously the other place is just look at what, what's competing for your sleep that's, uh, that you really don't need to be doing. So if you're spending a lot of time on social media, like that's within your purview, <laughs> right? Thank you for joining us today to help us better understand the position that a lot of our shift workers are in. And, and really, I feel like you've empowered me to help my colleagues, but really also help me to help my patients and, and help them understand this better. I'm really hoping that folks even outside of sleep medicine will hear this and will take these recommendations into consideration. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Seema, for this opportunity. It was really fun. And I appreciate the opportunity to have uh, worked on this task force. And I really hope that these uh, recommendations are helpful. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>